You can take that out. But, yeah. Well, at this okay. point, I don't, I don't know how you can do that. But Yeah, I can just delete it. All right. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> You'll fix it in post. I'll fix it in post. Thank you very much. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. That sounded really good, I think. Yeah. How's this new setup? How do How you feel it? about it? How am I feeling about it? Well, we'll see. I mean, I was always advocating, you know, switching back and forth or doing something like that. So I like it. You sound great. That was fun. That was fun. I definitely felt like I wasn't going to get through all those words, but I did. We may want to think about switching back and forth or something. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It is, very ironically, the final day of winter here in the nation's capital, and quite a day it has been for Emily and me. First of all, Falcon and the Winter Soldier dropped on Disney Plus today. We have both seen the first episode. I think it's safe to say we both give it our seal of approval. Big thumbs up, I think. Oh, you were waiting for me. Yes, yes. I agree. Yes, she, okay. <laughs> I figured you you of all people would be sort of chomping at the bit to pipe in. So that dropped today, and that has been a real treat. This is going to be a really great series, I think. They're already off to a fantastic start. But just as importantly, the big one, the one that Emily and I have been kind of waiting for for many, many months now, uh, we'll be reviewing Captain America the Winter Soldier, our favorite movie in the MCU. That's probably not going to change anytime soon, I don't think. And we've had a lot of fun preparing for this review. A couple surprises in store. You've heard one already. Before we get to the review, of course, well, you know, I'm going to give the ticker tape machine a rest today because we really don't have a whole lot of news other than the fact that Falcon and the Winter Soldier dropped today. So I think we'll just go ahead and dive into our review of Captain America. The Winter Soldier, which opened on April 4th, 2014 in the United States. It stars Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, ya boy, Sebastian Stan. My boy. <laughs> that sounded like Borat. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all the listeners. I did not mean for that to happen. Continue. So, I'm so sorry. That's all right. Anthony Mackie, the two men of the hour of the day today. Kobe Smulders, Frank Grillo, Emily Van Camp, Haley Atwell, Robert Redford, and Samuel L. Jackson. Story by Don Payne and Robert Rodat. Screenplay by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who, as we've said many times before, also scripted the other two Cat movies, plus Infinity War and Endgame. This film was directed by Joe and Anthony Russo. The Russo brothers, they had directed a couple of small feature films before, but were known primarily as television directors and producers, most notably for the comedy series Community, which they worked on for five years. This was their first MCU film as directors. It would most certainly not be their last. At the box office, the film made $714.4 million on a budget of somewhere between $170 and $177 million. A hit by any other box office standards, but The Winter Soldier, oddly enough, remains one of the lower-grossing MCU films. It's number 16 out of 23 in terms of box office receipts. It made about $30 million more than Doctor Strange and about $50 million less than Iron Man 2, to give you some idea. Quick background, this film is based very heavily on the Winter Soldier story arc in the Captain America comics run in the aughts and early teens by writer Ed Brubaker, who appears as one of the scientists in the bank scene with Winter Soldier, by the way. And uh, that comic was drawn by Steve Epting, both of whom created the Winter
Winter Soldier character during that run. Do we want to do uh, overall impressions now? I mean, I guess we don't need to do rankings. I feel like they probably definitely know where we rank these movies. Yes, we've kind of beaten them over the head with the fact that this is our favorite movie. So, overall impressions of the film. I mean, here we are, unarguably the best movie in the MCU. I will retain no other options or opinions for the first place ranking. I don't think it'll get moved. You know, and we've gotten the chance to talk about this movie a few other times in our top five intro episode, as well as our top five moments a few episodes back. So I imagine the listeners, of course, we've already said, you guys know how we feel. For a long time, probably until this movie came out, I was definitely Team Iron Man. As we've said before, those movies were really good at humanizing the main character in an action movie, which isn't super common and is, of course, pretty hard to do. But this movie movie totally changed my opinion of whether I was Team Iron Man or Team Captain America. And I just really like some good angst. I've noticed. (laughs) Not just angst for the sake of angst. You know, one thing that I like about this movie is it feels like everything in this movie happens for a reason. They're not just writing plot for the sake of plot or lines for the sake of lines or suffering for the sake of suffering. And I'm obviously not in the heads of the Russo brothers or anything, but I think that they were thinking of the future of the MCU when they did this movie. And a lot of the other movies in base two, more specifically, at least to me, feel like the directors were trying to prove something and they weren't really thinking about how it would connect with the rest of the story. But that's definitely not the case in this movie. I absolutely love how tight this film is, and I give a lot of credit to the Russo brothers for some very smart direction, and also to Marcus and McFeely for writing such an incredible script. I mean, they know all these characters, they know the source material, they've got a good grasp on what Kevin Feige and Marvel were trying to accomplish with the MCU as a whole. I mean, I love this film kind of for the same reason that Die Hard is one of my favorite films of all time. It's an incredibly efficient film that tells a great story by focusing on that story first and foremost, and yet it's got a fantastic cast of characters played by phenomenal actors who enrich the story by giving it moments of depth and pathos and by making us care about those characters and what happens to them. And it does this brilliantly without taking away from the story one bit. I'm not fond of a lot of character-driven film and TV because it's like, okay, these are interesting people and they've got some interesting stuff going on in their lives and I care about their feelings and motivations and so forth, but they're slowing the story down. Winter Soldier never feels like that. Never. Like I said, it's a story that's told efficiently, but never seems lacking or empty or overwhelmingly plot-driven. There's just enough character stuff to keep it interesting and layered and to help develop the greater shared cinematic universe and, you know, the action. Like, God, especially the way the Cap is depicted in, you know, personal combat in this movie is just incredible. In case that little switcheroo at the top of the show didn't clue you in, we're going to do something a little different this time around. I'm going to get up out of the driver's seat right now, and Emily is going to be our pilot in command for the rest of the show. So, without further ado, take it away, Emily. The film opens up in the heart of our nation's capital and your podcast host's backyard, Washington, D.C., as Steve Rogers meets Sam Wilson during a run around the reflecting pool on the National Mall. Sam is a former member of the 58th Pararescue, but now works at the VA. Their meeting is interrupted by Natasha Romanoff, who arrives to pick Steve up for a mission. I love this movie, obviously, of course, in case you forgot in the last minute and a half. So I'm going to do my best not to complain about the stuff that they do get wrong about DC, (laughs) at least not too much. But I can't imagine there is any day of the week that the reflecting pool is not covered in early morning runners. Like if it's anything like the rest of them all, it's got to be just not nearly as empty as they made it out to be in this scene. (laughs) Also, Natasha is a brave soul to drive in the tourist part of DC during what is likely rush hour. And the mission is clearly important. Nudge, nudge. 
Wink, wink. Okay, yeah, Natasha may be a brave soul to drive in the tourist part of DC during rush hour, but she's got a Corvette, so you know naturally that makes it easier. Not only is this opening scene very funny with all the on-your-left stuff, but the fact that Steve and Sam hit it off so well right at the outset is just really special. The moment Sam asks... It's your bed, right? It's like they understand each other instantly in a way that, that only combat veterans can. If you watch the special features on the DVD Blu-ray release, they talk about how Steve's list varies depending on the language being spoken in the particular part of the world in which the film was released. So in the US and Canada, it's got I Love Lucy, Disco, and Steve Jobs. In the UK and Ireland, it's got the 1966 World Cup Final and Sean Connery. In Russia, it's Yuri Gagarin and the Soviet Union Dissolution. I never really thought about what it would say in Russia. I think that's really funny given all the stuff that Steve missed was like Cold War stuff. Mm-hmm. And that they would switch it to be more like, I wouldn't even say like pro-Russian, but like Russian-related content. That's funny. There's a lot more than what I just said, but a lot of it is it's stuff that I, because it's, it's Russian references that I just wouldn't get. If you have the opportunity, if you have the home video release, check it out. It's pretty neat. You'd probably find it on YouTube somewhere. Shortly thereafter, Steve and Natasha are on a S.H.I.E.L.D. Quinjet over the Indian Ocean, along with S.H.I.E.L.D.'s counterterrorism strike team, led by Agent Brock Rumlow. They're headed for a S.H.I.E.L.D. satellite launch ship, the Lumerian Star, that's been hijacked by pirates led by mercenary George Batrock. The ship's crew is being held hostage, including S.H.I.E.L.D. officer Agent Jasper Sitwell, last seen on the bridge of the helicarrier in Avengers. Cap and Strike have been tasked with freeing and recovering the hostages. Cap boards the Lumerian Star first and begins making his way along the deck looking for Batrock, incapacitating lots of Batrock's men along the way. Meanwhile, Natasha heads aft to secure the engine room. One thing I like about this scene, more specifically on the Quinjet, but also can be found sort of throughout this mission, is the witty banter is actually good. Like, I never minded Joss Whedon's writing when it came to the funny one-liners and stuff, but it's definitely much better in this movie. And I feel like Natasha's banter, where she's talking about getting Steve dates, is not relevant to the situation. But it flows well back and forth and goes easily back into the serious discussions at hand without feeling like you're being tossed around. Like, I think when Natasha says that she's multitasking, when she keeps asking (laughs) Steve about what's going on with dates while also attending to the task at hand of destroying some pirates, is exactly what's happening here. And for once, I I think it's a good idea. You know, I know a lot of people who really genuinely like Joss Whedon banter, but one of the reasons I don't is because it feels, it just feels forced to me. Marcus and McFeely have this uncanny ability to write witty banter that's funny, yet understated enough so that you're not hitting the audience over the head with it repeatedly. I think we discussed in our Avengers show how Cap's hand-to-hand combat prowess was a little less than impressive, and how he seemed so average, especially compared, obviously, to the likes of Iron Man or Thor or Hulk. But regardless of whether or not those comparisons are fair, he must have taken some crash courses in a bunch of different martial arts in the years since the Battle of New York, because he just kicks so much ass in this movie and when he boards that ship most of it is without him even having to use the shield he's doing jujitsu muay thai boxing karate standard boxing parkour and it looks so fluid and agile and absolutely amazing this is how you want to see captain america fight in my opinion that move right before rumlow lands on the deck where cap puts his shield up in the guy's face and then punches it to hit the guy is (laughs) probably my favorite move of the scene i love it when he bounces the shield off the deck to hit that one dude. I also love it whenever he spins in midair, especially when he's doing it like while throwing the shield. There's a cool move in Age of Ultron that I'll talk about when we get around to that movie where he does that. 
Strike secures the hostages as Cap makes his way to the bridge to look for Batrock. Sure enough, he finds him and they fight, with Cap taking him out handedly. Just as he dispatches Batrock, he encounters Natasha downloading S.H.I.E.L.D. intel instead of helping Rumlow as she was ordered to do by Cap. Apparently, Nick Fury sent her on her own discreet side mission without informing Cap. Um... Can we talk about Cap speaking French? Because that was nice. I am sure that he learned it during the war or whatever, but I would like to hear him speak more French. Please and thank you. Uh, don't you mean, s'il vous plaît, et merci? My French is limited to how, Cycling to, order, terms. <laughs> how to order French fries. That's all I know how to do. <laughs> how to say who's in first, second, or third in the Tour de France. <laughs> what stage? <laughs> the whole Lemurian star sequence is just awesome. I mean, it's fast-paced, yet easy to follow, makes sense. It's shot very, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but efficiently. Yet, as I've said before, repeatedly, it doesn't leave you feeling lacking. I can't help myself from saying it a million times about this movie. There's nothing is wasted. Also, I know this is their job, but just how stealthy everyone on the strike team is is so cool. Obviously, it's Rumlow or one of his men where they take out the guy that's on the other side of the door from the hostages. Oh, yeah. And they cover his mouth really quick. Like, that's so cool. They use, like, the stun stick so there's no gunshot to hear. And then they just grab the guy and cover his mouth and lower him down so he doesn't hit the floor real loud. Oh, the whole scene. It's an action film fan's heaven. It really is. Back at the Triskelion, Shields HQ in Washington, D.C., definitely on the Virginia side of the Potomac because it is way too tall to be built in D.C. given the height restrictions in the district. <laughs> Cap confronts Fury about Natasha's side mission, clearly not happy about how Fury is withholding information. As a demonstration of his ability to share, Fury lets Cap in on Project Insight. Three heavily armed next-generation helicarriers synced to a network of targeting satellites launched by the Lumerian Star and capable of continuous suborbital flight. The guns can take out a thousand hostiles in a minute because the satellites can read their DNA very quickly. Cap objects vehemently to the preemptive nature of the InSight carriers. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We saw the beginnings of it in Avengers, and now we see more of Cap having to confront the morally ambiguous nature of the times in which he now lives. The whole reason he became Captain America was to fight a regime that was trying to impose its will over its people by force. That he's starting to see that at home clearly makes him very uneasy. It's interesting, too, that Fury and Cap were talking about trust in this scene. Fury doesn't trust anyone, how Cap doesn't trust Fury, the story about Fury's grandfather not trusting his neighbors. I'm sure at this moment, Fury thinks that Project Insight is more trustworthy than the people he works with. But even if it was operating how it was fully intended, it only takes the bad guys out. Like, okay. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't see any problem with it until Cap makes his concerns known. On his way home, Cap covertly stops by the Air and Space Museum, which is currently home to an exhibit on Captain America. He pauses reflectively at a memorial for Bucky Barnes. I love the Air and Space Museum. It's probably my favorite Smithsonian, and I can't imagine how cool it would be if we actually lived in the universe where we got a Captain America exhibit. I've thought that to myself before. That exhibit looks really, really neat, and I would totally go there a million times. He also pays a visit to an elderly Peggy Carter, who is now, sadly, in the throes of dementia. He confesses his fears and doubts about his ability to do his job in this seemingly morally comprised world. Before drifting into another episode of Confusion, she confers some wisdom to Steve. All we can do is our best, and sometimes the best we can do is to start over. This is the first time we've seen Peggy since the first Avenger. It's good to see her despite her condition. I know that I like angst. I know that I said that, but why is everything with Steve always so dang sad? You know, his best friend falls off a moving train, he gets lost in an entire new century, and now the love of his life can hardly remember him. Poor Steve. Aww. Little sad emoji face. 
Sniff. Yeah. When Fury is unable to decrypt the intel retrieved by Natasha, he visits his old friend Alexander Pierce, senior S.H.I.E.L.D. official and Secretary of Internal Security for the World Security Council, and asks him to delay the launch of Project Insight. Pierce reluctantly agrees to do so. Robert Redford in a political thriller. The 1970s are back, baby. He's a good baddie. I like him. I do too. Cap stops by the VA and catches the last couple minutes of a meeting of a veteran support group led by Sam. Cap reveals to him that he's considering getting out of the superhero business, but that he doesn't know what he would do. Or know what would make him happy. Before he became an Avenger, Sam Wilson was helping veterans, including those suffering from PTSD, adjust to life as civilians, despite what I'm sure are absolutely enormous challenges. And it's really nice to see one of our heroes doing a, air quotes, normal job that benefits society without destroying buildings and such. Fury orders Maria Hill to get down to D.C. immediately. On his way to rendezvous with her, he is ambushed by a crew impersonating D.C. Metro police officers. After a perilous car chase through the streets of D.C., Fury is able to shake the fake cops, but is confronted by a mysteriously masked figure in black with a metal arm who disables his vehicle and nearly kills him. At the last minute, Fury is able to make his escape through a manhole in the street. Now... I won't overwhelm the episode by talking about this scene, as it is in my top five MCU moments that we just talked about a few episodes ago, but I'm just going to drop a little bit of fun trivia here. I have a friend who lives in Cleveland where a lot of this movie was shot, so I know that the lobby of the Triskelion is the Cleveland Museum of Art, and one of the buildings that gets a good long shot during part of this car chase is for a law firm called, get ready, Colfi, Halter, and Griswold. And my last name is Griswold. So how wow. weird is that? Wow. It's like you've got an even more symbiotic relationship with this film than I had originally thought. It's name dropping you. I think this is the first bona fide car chase in the MCU. And it's a good one, even if they're not actually in DC. And just when you think it's over, Winter Soldier comes out of nowhere and is able to do in a handful of seconds by himself what an army of goons couldn't do. Stop Nick Fury, or at least his car. Cap returns to his apartment that night. After a brief, mildly flirtatious encounter with his next-door neighbor, he is surprised to find Nick Fury in his apartment. Fury has just enough time to silently signal to Cap that they are being surveilled, that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been compromised, and that only the two of them know before he is shot by a sniper. As he collapses, Fury slips Cap the drive with the Lemurian star data on it. Cap's neighbor, who reveals herself to be Agent 13 of S.H.I.E.L.D. Special Services, arrives to tend to Fury. She was assigned by Fury to protect Cap. Cap takes off on an office building rooftop chase after Fury's assailant. When he gets close enough to do so, Cap hurls his shield at him, only to have the mysterious assailant turn around, catch it easily with one hand, and throw it back at Cap really hard before fleeing. This chase is brief, but I love it. Cap jumps out of his apartment window and crashes through the window of an office building across the street. And that is just so neat. One of the things, again, that I love about this movie is how they finally make Cap really look like the badass action hero that he is. And and also, an observation that I had, surprised I didn't notice this earlier in the however dozens or hundreds of times I've seen this movie, Cap barreling through the office is mildly reminiscent of Hulk running through the crowded office building during the Battle of New York in Avengers. So Steve got better at hand-to-hand -hand fighting and got worse at turning corners. <laughs> also, I feel bad for whatever poor office workers are going to show up to work the next day and find their desks totally destroyed. Captain America, one. Drywall, zero. 
Hill joins Cap and Natasha at the hospital where Fury is in surgery. Moments later, Fury is pronounced dead. After Hill takes possession of the body, Natasha confronts Steve, asking him why Fury was in his apartment. Steve tells her that he doesn't know. Before leaving, he manages to hide the drive with the Lemarian Star Intel in a vending machine. I like that Natasha says that he's a terrible liar. She's not wrong. Right before Steve does probably the most spy movie thing that he could think of, which is hiding the drive in the vending machine. And I can guarantee you that she knew that he would do that before he even knew that he was going to do that. (laughs) Pierce summons Cap to his office the next day. He provides Cap with evidence that seems to support that Fury himself hired Batroc and the pirates to attack the Lemurian Star. Pierce says it was probably a cover for the acquisition and sale of classified intelligence, a sale that went bad, thus ending in Fury's death. Pierce presses Cap to explain why Fury was in his apartment. Cap continues to say that he doesn't know. All right, I know that I said I wasn't going to talk about things that I didn't like about this movie, but I have one other thing, and it is my least favorite line in this whole movie. Well, Pierce and Steve are talking. Pierce says something like, to build a really better world sometimes means tearing the old one down. And like, a really better world? I feel like there are a million better words than really. Like, I just felt (laughs) like that sentence never flowed, and it always really bothered me. I looked at this comment of yours last night, and I was originally going to respond to the substance of it, but is it really more sort of syntactically (laughs) and grammatically um, an an issue for you? It's the grammar. It's the really better world part. Like, because he could have said truly, like a truly better world. Like uh-huh. that would have fit. That okay. would have gotten his point across. Neither of us were English majors, but I really was not an English major. So I don't have a whole lot I can say to that. I guess I've never really noticed that. That whole little scene, I like it for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that line is, it just sounds like something that Pierce would say. It may sound a little cliche, but I don't have a problem with it because it very succinctly tells you what kind of a man Pierce is, what his geopolitical position is. It just seems like something he'd say he's like a puppet master he's a political military whatever puppet master you get his worldview in a nutshell right there after leaving Pierce's office, he is ambushed by Rumlow and the strike team in the elevator, having now been branded as a traitor by Pierce. Cap overpowers the strike team and is able to escape the Triskelion. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? <laughs> that was an offer to everyone because Mark is about to give you the serious rundown on this scene. I apologize in advance for me just sort of fanboying out over the scene. You've heard me fanboy a little bit in other episodes of the show. Doctor Strange will be pretty fanboy too, but that's only a close second. The elevator fight, where the hell do we start? <laughs> okay, maybe I shouldn't speak for you. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of movie history, frankly, let alone the MCU. Because part of the ground rules for this episode is that we get to gush uncontrollably about the stuff we love in this movie. I'm going to do it. So I'm taking the liberty to dissect my absolute favorite sequence of this film. I love how Cap and the audience very quickly piece together in the elevator that something's not right, with more and more of these big, beefy-looking guys piling into the elevator. In the comics, there's a precedent for Cap's senses and his intuition being heightened by the super soldier serum, and I think you notice it when he sees that one dude sweating. And then the fight itself is just freaking awesome. He takes down 10 guys in less than a minute, 58 seconds to be precise. But it's not over, because Cap is still stuck in an elevator, several floors up with all of S.H.I.E.L.D. hunting him down. He uses his shield to cut the elevator cable, which drops him about 10 stories before the emergency brake kicks in. He's got S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and security inbound, and he's still a long way up in the air. All he can do is break the glass wall of the elevator and jump all the way down. He's not even jumping, he's falling. He is falling all the way down, landing just outside the building. But it's still not over, because he's still within the confines of S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. So he hops on his motorcycle. How he got to the bike that quickly, I don't know, but, you know, it's Cap, so it's 
all right. And he makes for the bridge that leads from the Triskelion over the Potomac River to Washington, D.C. We've talked about how folks here in the D.C. metro area find that all incredibly amusing. And at the other end of the bridge, it's got all these gates and barriers and giant spiky things popping up to prevent him from escaping. They set a Quinjet after him, which starts shooting at him. He dodges the fire from the Quinjet and he leaps up onto the Quinjet and he uses his shield to disable it before jumping off and he sticks the superhero landing while the Quinjet crashes. It is one of my favorite sequences in any movie ever. He single-handedly took down a Quinjet and walked, or I guess more specifically, ran away. Mike dropped. <laughs> I can rest easy tonight now. Pierce announces to all of S.H.I.E.L.D. that Steve is a wanted fugitive for withholding information about the death of Nick Fury. A manhunt for Cap ensues. Cap goes back to the hospital, incognito, to retrieve the drive, only to bump into Natasha, who has already beaten him to it. She tells Steve that she believes an assassin referred to as the Winter Soldier is responsible for killing Fury. He has been credited with over two dozen assassinations over the course of 50 years. He almost killed her during a mission in Iran. Neither Natasha nor Steve know what's on the drive, so they leave the hospital together to find out. Meanwhile, the World Security Council votes to reactivate Project Insight. I think the benefit of not really being into the comics here is that when they were talking about the Winter Soldier the first time that I watched this movie, all the way back in 2014, I honestly was like, whoa, man, who's the Winter Soldier? This is crazy. <laughs> like, I was definitely not ready for who he actually turns out to be. I knew some stuff about the plot going in. You know me. I don't care about spoilers. <laughs> but I truly had no clue what we were getting into here. It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, as a comics fan, I had read the Winter Soldier arc only about a year before the film came out because I was a little late to Marvel Comics, as I've said before in our very first episode. But the thing that, again, makes this movie so great is even for the comics fans who were expecting that, who knew who the Winter Soldier was. There were still so many surprises in this movie. It's like, okay, yeah, you know this, but we got this in our back pocket to throw at you. And it's one of the reasons the movie, I think, is so great. It has something for everyone. Knowing that Strike will be on them the moment they read the drive, Cap and Natasha go to an Apple store at a local shopping mall and read the drive on a MacBook. They can't open the files on the drive, but they do determine that they were created in a location in New Jersey, with which Cap says that he's familiar. They evade the Strike team hunting them down in the mall and borrow a pickup truck and head to New Jersey. I love the scene in the Apple store. It's almost like two kids getting caught with their hands in the cookie jar when Mr. I've Been Aaron walks up on them. <laughs> Steve looks like the kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar and Natasha looks like the kid who him into doing it uh, those glasses <laughs> i feel like we've talked about cap and natasha's scene in the truck on the way to new jersey before but since we're actually reviewing the movie now we should revisit it i really enjoy the playful banter here we've talked ad nauseum about natasha's relationships with her fellow avengers most notably hawkeye banner and fury but this film gives us our first look at her relationship with steve if her relationship with hawkeye is this close unique friendship that kind of defies explanation and her relationship with banner is romantic and her relationship with Fury is akin to one with a mentor. Her relationship with Steve seems very brother and sister-like to me. And Natasha is definitely the older sibling in this equation, despite being decades younger. <laughs> and this scene also makes me think, you know that I like to think about the Avengers in their non-superhero daily life. So I like to think about the truck that they borrowed. If it actually survived the attack on the army base that Steve, you know, after he's recovered from the events at the end of the movie, has to tuck his tail and go back to New Jersey or D.C. or 
wherever they stole the truck from <laughs> and return it to the owner with this just like pitiful apology note with some cookies from Sam next to it. Dear owner, sorry we stole your truck and then I got blown up by a tactical missile attack. Uh, I mean, you saw what the missile did to the compound, didn't you? I think the only thing Cap's going to be returning is like the charred remains of a banged up side view mirror and a hubcap. Maybe the keys if he bothered to take them out of the ignition before he and Natasha got out. Cap and Natasha track the origins of the files to an abandoned army base in New Jersey, the same base at which Steve received his basic training back in World War II. I think out of all the main Avengers, so Hulk, Tony, Thor, Steve, Steve is the one whose mental anguish about the past is more subtle. Like, it's pretty clear what Hulk's pain points are, as well as Tony's and even Thor to a point. They all kind of wear their emotions on their sleeves, and it's almost like Steve has survivor's guilt. And because of that, it's harder to see his pain points because he feels guilty for even having them in the first place. It's brief, but I think you see a bit of this in his face during the scene because this is the place that made him and the memories he sees, his old self running the drills, and before all of this started, before everything changed. And he's the reason it all changed in the first place. So maybe it kind of feels like he's wondering if, if it had been better if he would have just failed out of basic training or not been selected for the serum program that none of this would have happened i think the two most difficult characters in all of comics to portray effectively on screen are probably superman and captain america they've both unfairly i believe gotten a bad rap because people think that characters that are that good and that morally centered are boring that they're nothing more than jingoistic do-gooders who are all you know kind of up with america and stuff like that and that just couldn't be further from the truth i mean we got to see a fantastic superman in those christopher Reeve films and we now get this wonderfully nuanced and complex Steve Rogers here what makes him so fascinating and what makes us empathize with him so much is exactly what you just talked about Emily he's been given this amazing gift in the form of the super soldier serum he can serve his country and the world in a way that he could only dream of doing for such a long time before then and whether it be as a member of the US Army or as an Avenger he gets to do that now and yet look at what it's cost him Dr. Erskine Bucky or so Steve believes at this point in time. His relationship with Peggy, the last 70 years of his life, having to deal with this complicated present where the lines between good and evil are blurring. He hides the pain from all of that very well, but we, the audience, know what a difficult burden this has been for him to bear, despite his amazing ability to just plow through and make the best of the situation. On the army base, they discover a secret underground shield bunker containing old computers dating back to the 1970s, save one modern port in which they can plug in the drive. When they do, they activate a supercomputer containing the preserved consciousness of former Hydra scientist Arnim Zola. After his capture by Steve during the war, he was recruited by S.H.I.E.L.D., but he has been acting as a Hydra infiltrator, along with many others, ever since, sowing chaos around the world with the goal of convincing humanity to surrender its freedom in exchange for security. Zola displays for Cap and Natasha images from throughout history, including pictures of the Winter Soldier and headlines about the deaths of Howard and Maria Stark in an automobile accident. Project Insight, an instrument of that Hydra plot, requires an algorithm. That algorithm was written by Zola and is contained on the drive. Before Cap and Natasha can obtain any more information about the algorithm, S.H.I.E.L.D. conducts a missile strike on the bunker. Cap and Natasha are able to survive by hiding in an alcove in the bunker. The Winter Soldier is called in and he shows up at the house of Alexander Pierce, who is revealed to be Hydra's leader within S.H.I.E.L.D. He orders him to kill Cap and Natasha. 
I feel like when I saw the trailer for this movie, and I've mentioned this before, of course, I realized that we were in for some much darker stuff than all of the movies before. The content was going to be darker. The feelings and emotions were going to be darker. The plot, you know, etc. But I think watching the movie, I didn't realize it until the scene in Pierce's house. You know, I'm not going to say that the soldier is the baddie in this movie because to me, he's not, obviously. And I will not argue about that. (laughs) And of course... In past movies, there's someone, here it's Pierce, pulling the strings. But all of the other frontmen, the Mandarin, Whiplash, guys like that, had autonomy to some degree. They could act out and they could get what they wanted. They spoke up and they lied and they were unreliable a lot of the time. But the soldier has none of that. And I think that's when I was like, oh no, we're in trouble. Also, the music here is very good at upping the tension. All I can say about this scene is, poor Renata. Honestly, I was thinking about this when we watched, we being me and my roommate, when we watched this movie for the podcast episode. I don't think Renata would have said anything. I think he could have let her live. Uh, I think Renata knows better. Well, this is the guy acting as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he's also a Hydra agent. Leave no loose ends. I had no doubt in my mind that the moment she walked in that she was dead. With nowhere else to go. Cap and Natasha return to D.C. and go to the house of Sam Wilson to hide out. I think Natasha's chat with Cap about feeling like she traded the KGB in for Hydra is important because it builds upon her whole get the red out of my ledger speech from Avengers. And it puts her on the road to redemption, which, of course, we will hear more about in later films, most particularly in Avengers Endgame. Cap and Natasha deduce that Pierce ordered the missile strike and that Jasper Sidwell may be in on the plot given that he was the only S.H.I.E.L.D. officer on board the Lemurian Star along with the algorithm. They plan to kidnap him, but they need help. Sam offers to help, provided that they can retrieve a piece of classified technology that he needs from Fort Meade. Cap tells him that it shouldn't be a problem. Later, we see Jasper Sidwell leaving a restaurant. The Occidental, off of 14th Street in D.C. It's near where I used to work. I have eaten there. It's very good. And very expensive, too. Sitwell is with Senator Stern, played by Gary Shandling, reprising his role from Iron Man 2. The senator whispers Hail Hydra to Sitwell before departing. Cap, Natasha, and Sam reunited with his Falcon jet wing pack stolen from Fort Meade, kidnaps Sitwell and rough him up a bit. I love the line that Sitwell has about Steve throwing him off the roof and that being not Steve's style. You know, he isn't so wrong. (laughs) I can never get through this scene without mocking Sitwell because when Falcon pulls him back up onto the roof, he goes, what what does he say? It's so stupid. He's like, it's an algorithm. And it's like, yeah, man, we know it's an algorithm. Why don't you say what the algorithm does, bro? You didn't miss AT school. That's the only thing I remember. Your damn SAT scores. That's the only thing I remember. Steve Bruce Band, you Bruce Band, or Stephen Strange. What's the other one that I always like? That's gonna be that's gonna that's gonna be the title of this episode. Your damn SAT A valedictorian from Iowa City, a TV anchor in Cairo, like all just the names that he throws out. Sitwell reveals that Zola's algorithm is used to pick insights targets. The algorithm mines digital data about people's past and uses that information to predict their future, and whether or not they could become a threat to Hydra. The insight helicarriers can then eliminate these threats en masse with their long-range weapons. Among the names dropped by Sitwell as potential threats are Steve, Bruce Banner, and someone named Stephen Strange. Hmm... Another thing that I really like about this movie is just how close it is to real life. Like, I'm not going to get all tinfoil hat about this, but Sitwell isn't wrong. The government, along with private companies, know pretty much everything about us. The only thing that's stopping them from going full Hydro Project Insight is technological limitations and political will. 
Yep. With the Insight Carrier set to launch in 16 hours, Cap, Natasha, and Sam leave with Sitwell, but they're ambushed on the highway by the Winter Soldier, who kills Sitwell and forces the others to separate and flee on foot. A firefight ensues on the highway. Winter Soldier goes after Natasha, while his Hydra goons pursue Cap. With Sam's help, Cap shakes his pursuers and goes to help Natasha. He arrives just in time, as Winter Soldier has shot Natasha in the shoulder and is about to finish her off. The two engage in intense hand-to-hand combat. In the course of the fight, the Winter Soldier's mask falls off, revealing him to be none other than Steve's long-thought-to-be-dead best friend, Bucky Barnes. Bucky does not recognize Steve. Who the hell is Bucky? Steve freezes in shock and surprise, allowing Rumlow and Strike, Hydra, obviously, to take the three of them captive. Steve muses that whatever experiment Zola performed on Bucky when he was captured during the war must have allowed Bucky to survive the fall from the train. Wow, what a sequence. They shut down the West Shoreway, one of the busiest highways in downtown Cleveland, to shoot the first part of that whole chase and fight. In the shootout, I love how Cap uses his shield to deflect the fire of the guy with the big minigun back towards the other guys before subduing minigun guy up close and personal and the fight with Bucky oh my god the hand-to-hand stuff with the knife alone is just incredible they move so fast my favorite thing about this fight scene is the noise of the bullets ricocheting off Steve's shield oh yes I'd really like to know how the sound designers came up with that and then how they executed that noise (laughs) it does sound really really cool Cap, Natasha, and Sam are being transported to their inevitable execution when they are sprung by Maria Hill, who's been impersonating one of the S.H.I.E.L.D. slash Hydra troops. She takes them to a secret location where a very much alive Nick Fury, whose death was faked by him, is recuperating from his injuries. Meanwhile, Bucky is starting to remember Steve just a little bit. Pierce orders his memory wiped clean so that he can be ready for his role in the launch of Insight. Just give me a few minutes... To be incredibly sad about Bucky. (laughs) Gosh, I remember seeing this movie in theaters, and I think I went to like a midday matinee showing. So you walk out into the bright sun afterwards, and it was April, so it was probably hot, I'm betting. And I was still thinking about this reveal. Like, I was mentally still 100% in front of the movie screen, just staring at it, slack-jawed. And I mean, then the scene of him getting his memory wiped, like... I don't quite have the same connection with Bucky that you do, but I do feel at times just genuinely sorry for him because he's been through so much stuff. And yeah, him having to get his mind wiped is just kind of, oh man, ow, not again. Fury presents the group with his plan for taking out the Insight Carriers by replacing their targeting server blades with his own. Steve insists that if they're going to carry out the plan, they do so with the intention of taking down both Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D., since the latter has been so heavily compromised by the former. Fury reluctantly goes along. Before leaving to take down the Insight Carriers, Steve takes a moment to himself to start to try and process what happened on the bridge. We see another flashback, this time right after Steve's mom died. Steve tries to push Bucky away, when he offers his help, saying he can get by on his own. But Bucky pushes back, saying he doesn't have to and that Bucky is with him until the end of the line. Back in the present day, Sam arrives and tells Steve not to expect that Bucky will remember him. That the Bucky now isn't the kind of guy you save, he's the kind of guy you stop. Just kick me in the heart. Why don't you? (laughs) I just want Steve and Bucky to be friends again. They're both just so sad. And also, of course, Till the End of the Line is in our opener, and very similar, our title, We Can Do This All Day, is also another cap line. Can you tell that we're Captain America fans now? (laughs) Represent. 
Cap, having borrowed his old World War II-era uniform from the Smithsonian, accompanies Hill and Sam to infiltrate the Triskelion just as the World Security Council members arrive there also. Hoping to rally some people to the cause of the good guys, Cap uses the PA system to announce to everyone present that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been taken over by HYDRA, and that they plan to use the Insight helicarriers to implement their plan of global domination. The two sides clash in the Triskelion and on board the helicarriers as they are launched by Rumelow. This is where we get Cap's The Price of Freedom is High speech, which is, of course, a very, very Steve Rogers speech. That's a good speech, too. You know, I try not to buy into these types of speeches, but seeing all the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents stand up against the HYDRA agents while Steve is talking always kind of gives me chills. How immediately people reacted to try and help him because, I mean, it's Captain America. Heck, even that mousy little tech dude tries to stand up to Rumlow in the control room. Hey, that mousy little tech dude was probably a hell of a lot braver than I would have been. I guarantee you that. Right, that's the thing. It's like, even though I don't buy into the whole, like, yeah, Yay, Captain America stuff. I still think I could have been roused by that speech. I would have tried. Well, yeah, well, I mean, wait till we get to Endgame when he gives the, uh, you know, this is the fight of our lives speech in Endgame before they go back into the past. And even Rocket, who is arguably the most cynical and jaded character in all of the MCU, he's like, hey, he's pretty good at that. As Steve and Sam make their way onto the helicarriers, Natasha reveals herself to be disguised as one of the council members and disarms Pierce. Cap replaces the control blade on the first helicarrier, while Sam replaces the second. Superheroics abound as we see Cap fight his way through a ton of guys to get to the first control room, and Sam fly his way around an insane amount of anti-aircraft fire to get to the second control room. Before this movie came out, a lot of fans were wondering exactly how they were going to portray the Falcon. in terms of you know, how are they going to make a guy who flies with mechanical wings look realistic? Any doubt was, I think, erased very quickly in the minds of most fans because he looks amazing. Obviously, the focus of this scene is the action happening on the helicarriers, but I do kind of want to talk about the conversation between Pierce and the council members. I remember when we talked about Iron Man 3, and we talked about how the director wanted to go back to real-world problems, but how it didn't really work. This movie is all real-world problems, and it works. I mean, everything in the plot is relevant, a government with too much control over its citizens' data, a power-hungry intelligence leader, the petty arguments between the council members and Pierce about border disputes and sovereign water and whatever else. You know, I think this movie in general kind of does what Iron Man 3 tried and failed to do with bringing the story back to Earth, essentially, while still pushing the plot of the MCU forward. Marcus and McFeely, and to an extent the Russo brothers, they had a plan for this film. They had a story that they wanted to tell. They stuck to it, and I think that's one of the reasons why it worked. I don't want to go, you know, harping on Iron Man 3 again, but I don't know if it was the execution or, you know, like you said, it's like, you know, they say they want to try to, you know, make the movie feel more grounded which I suppose it sort of kind of was. But like you said, I don't get that feel in Iron Man 3 the way I do with Winter Soldier. Just as it appears that the good guys are going to get some air support from S.H.I.E.L.D. pilots, Bucky shows up and kills them and destroys many of the Quinjets before hijacking one of them himself. Natasha is about to disable the encryption surrounding all of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s and Hydra's files before dumping them out onto the internet. But she needs two high-ranking S.H.I.E.L.D. officials to do that. Fortunately for her, Nick Fury arrives by helicopter. He forces Pierce to help 
help him disable the encryption. Just as Cap and Sam arrive on the third and final helicarrier, Bucky attacks, causing Cap to fall off the deck and land in another area of the ship and disabling Falcon's wing pack, forcing him to parachute down to the Triskelion. With Rumlow on his way to the council room, Sam heads there to help Natasha. Cap arrives in the third carrier server room, only to be confronted by Bucky, who stands in the way. Cap begs him not to make them fight each other, but he's left no choice as Bucky refuses to give ground. They fight, and it is a brutal fight as Cap continuously loses and then retrieves the final control blade while trying to get it into the server. Sam engages Rumlow in an office in the Triskelion. With only seconds to spare before the carriers link up with the InSight satellites, a very badly wounded Cap inserts the third and final blade into the third and final helicarrier server, thus allowing Hill to take control and have the three carriers fire on each other. After a struggle in which two of the council members are killed, Fury shoots and kills Pierce. Two of the helicarriers collide with each other before plunging into the Potomac. On the third carrier, Bucky is trapped underneath debris. It collides with the Triskelion while Sam and Rumlow are fighting there. Sam is able to escape by jumping out a window and is caught by a helicopter piloted by Fury and Natasha. Rumlow's fate is unknown. Cap frees Bucky from the debris as the carrier continues its descent, and he desperately tries to get through to Bucky one last time. You've known me your whole life. Your name is James Buchanan Barnes. He refuses to fight Bucky, who beats the living heck out of him. Even as he violently denies that he knows Steve, it's clear that he's starting to remember. Part of the carrier collapses out from underneath them, and Cap falls into the Potomac. Moments later, we see Bucky drag a barely alive Steve to shore before walking away. I know I've been saying this a lot, but this whole fight scene hurts so bad in the best way possible. I mean, for Steve, the last thing he knew before a couple years ago was that Bucky was dead, and he was essentially killing himself to save the world and hopefully end the war. For Bucky, we have an idea of what he's been going through since the 40s, but it's most likely 10 times worse than what we can imagine. Both of them are so traumatized and struggling just to complete their missions, but also, I mean, having to fight your best friend like this after you just got him back has to be terrible. And either they didn't wipe him completely at the bank or Steve actually somewhat got through to him because Bucky saved his life. That entire sequence is just stunning. It is so well choreographed. Everything happens for a reason. You never lose track of where the characters are despite so much going on. As I've said before a million times, nothing is wasted in this movie. The storytelling is so clean and efficient, it never feels lacking. I know I sound like a broken record, but that's how strongly I feel about this. Say what you want about Marvel movies having over-the-top set pieces at the end, looking like disaster porn. The final sequence is scripted beautifully. It flows effortlessly and it's directed masterfully by two guys who prior to this had only directed a couple of low budget features and a bunch of episodes of Community and to think at this point they still have three of the most epic Marvel movies ever made awaiting them. At the hospital, Sam sits by Cap's bedside as he recuperates from his injuries. In a montage, we see Agent 13, now training to become a CIA agent. Maria Hill, undergoing a polygraph in the Human Resources Department of Stark Industries. Senator Stern, being hauled away by the FBI. And a badly burned Rumlow being taken to the hospital. The battle harness he wears being a reference to his comic book character, Crossbones, identity. Natasha appears before a hostile Senate subcommittee that wants to put her and her teammates away for disabling the country's intelligence apparatus. Natasha tells them they won't do that because they need them now. 
more than ever. Fury is seen setting fire to all of his remaining personal property, thus ensuring his status as a ghost. He is preparing to head to Europe to track down some of the Hydra personnel who got away. Natasha gives Cap a file from one of her old Russian cohorts containing info on Bucky. Cap and Sam decide to start looking for Bucky. Marvel has the best closing credit sequences. This one is undoubtedly my favorite. In a mid-credit sequence, we see Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in a Hydra lab that contains Loki's scepter. He proclaims that the Age of Miracles has begun as scientists examine two test subjects known as the twins. One, a young man with superhuman speed, and the other is a young woman with telekinetic powers emanating from her hands with a scarlet-colored energy. So you like the closing credit sequences, and I like the mid-credit sequences. This is probably one of my favorites. It sets us up for what we end up seeing in Ultron, and of course introduces us to one of the more consequential characters in the MCU, at least from where we're standing in early 2021. In a post credit scene, Bucky visits his own memorial at the Smithsonian exhibit. Bucky. And, and we got... Bucky. We got we got through the movie. Aww. Do you need to cry now? Yes, I do. I do need to cry. I, I, I'm I've kinda, filled I'm, up with so much Bucky emotions today. I, I'm kind of serious about that. Hey, you got through the story. <laughs> whoop, whoop. So, this is the part where we talk about characters and actors starting with chris evans as steve rogers slash captain america another great performance from chris evans as steve rogers arguably his best so far in the first avenger we got to see the core of steve rogers who he is and why he needed to be captain america in this film we see steve's sense of self and sense of purpose evolving because he's being forced to question a lot of what he believes in. Namely, the nature of the good guys, the bad guys, and whether or not there actually are any more good guys and bad guys. The morally ambiguous nature of this new reality started to unsettle Cap in Avengers, and in Winter Soldier, the gravity of the situation makes him reset and reaffirm his moral compass. He's gonna set things right, even if it means burning S.H.I.E.L.D. down to the ground. And as I referenced earlier in the film, Evans does such a good job of showing us a Steve Rogers, who, on the one hand, is a superhero in every sense of the word, but is also bearing so many burdens. He'd already lost so much even before the events of this film, but now, all the institutions that he trusted to make the world safer have betrayed him. He has to relive the trauma of losing his best friend, experience new trauma by finding out that Bucky is alive, but has been brainwashed by the bad guys all these years, and then lose him again in the end of the movie. Chris Evans plays it in a way that is so accessible and so identifiable. This is why we love Steve Rogers so much. We empathize with everything that he's going through. The super soldier serum can't do anything about that kind of pain. And on a more personal note, as someone who's been struggling with identity and my sense of self and my sense of purpose as I start to move into, you know, midlife, I can't help but feel for Cap as he struggles with his sense of purpose, wondering what he's meant to do in this world. I think what makes Steve so good in this movie, too, is that Chris Evans, despite the fact that he is very much a cute puppy dog in real life, is that he is really good at playing these sort of deep brooding characters that you know have a lot of baggage frankly I talked a little bit about his survivor's guilt earlier in the episode and I think that Chris just plays that so well and of course it helps that the movie is well written and the Steve here is a very good Steve compared to some of the other movies you know if that makes sense up to this point in the MCU if anyone deserves a break it's definitely Steve Mm. Rogers another thing I also like about Steve's arc 
in general is just how clear it is. Everything about it is clean and makes sense. Tony's arc, as well as his character development, kind of just careens all over the place, and he's more reactive than proactive. And of course, we talk about how Thor gets the short end of the stick and gets used mostly to further the plot with some hand-waving around his character development. But Steve has always been Steve. And I think even though he's confused about who's good and who's bad, Steve is always going to pick the side that's doing the right thing, no matter how he feels personally or what's happening to him, while the others just kind of fly from one crisis to the next. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow. Steve apparently is not the only one questioning things. Natasha, already concerned about trying to turn a corner and get the red out of her ledger, now finds out that she was still working for bad guys even when she thought she was working for the good guys. So, in some ways, that realization was probably more troubling to her than to Steve, since she'd been working for S.H.I.E.L.D. longer. Boy, she takes quite a stand at the end of the film and makes it clear that she's doing things her way now that S.H.I.E.L.D. has effectively been defeated. Fanged. As much as I enjoyed Scarlett Johansson's performance in Avengers and in Age of Ultron coming up, frankly, I know you differ from me on that, but I like that performance. There's just something about her in this movie and in the other Russo Brothers pictures. I don't know if it's their direction or the way that she's playing it, but her performances in the Russo Brothers films seem more understated, and I like that. I think it underscores her underlying humanity very well. I really like her in this movie, and I like her also in Civil War. I'm not a huge fan of Natasha in Age of Ultron, but that's just because I'm not a huge fan of that movie and where it takes her character in terms of her relationship with Bruce Banner. I think my favorite thing about Natasha's character in this movie is even though she's dealing with very important things, like bringing down possibly the biggest intelligence agency in the world, (laughs) she's able to, as Fury says, compartmentalize and still be there for Steve and still be her own self, too. You know, even though this isn't her movie, we'll hopefully get that later this year, she still gets to grow and be her own person, counter to Steve. We talked about before, she's not there for the sake of Steve and growing his character. She's there to grow her own character as well, which is something we haven't really gotten to see so far. Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes slash the Winter Soldier. Ya boy. My boy. Listen, it's just, okay. I know sometimes actors get pigeonholed into being a very specific type of character, and Sebastian definitely is always either a very, very sad boy or a very, very evil boy. And wouldn't you know it, this movie has both at the same time. I love all his time spent as the Winter Soldier. He's so intimidating and spooky and untouchable. But then when you start to see a little bit of Bucky, you can just feel the pain in his voice and of course see it on his face. I can't imagine how many times Bucky was, as they say, out of cryo too long and had to have his memory wiped. How many times he might have started to remember Steve only to lose it all over again. And I think you see that all play out on his face. Bucky is probably the character in the MCU that for me is the most sympathetic. Like, of course, other people were tortured and they've suffered losses, but decades, over half a century as someone else's puppet. Also, I mean, you know, Sebastian Stan is pretty hot, so, like, there's that, too. Well, I don't have too much more to add, given that we've just gotten the expert opinion from our foremost Buckyologist. I don't have quite the same attachment to the character as you do. It's got to be the understatement of the year. But I will say that this film does a really good job making me feel really sorry for Bucky. And not in a pity party kind of way, but in a genuine, wow, he's been through the ringer and had his mind wiped a zillion times and lost an arm and forced to murder a ton of people and I feel so bad for him kind of way. Like, how can he 
ever come back from that and live a halfway or even you know quarter way normal life and we are starting to see a little bit of that in the falcon and the winter soldier which we had the opportunity to watch the first episode of today but still very sad and it just kind of makes me genuinely hope that somehow he can find a measure of peace Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson slash the Falcon. There may be no one as instantly likable and instantly accessible in all the MCU as Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson. He just exudes this extraordinary charisma that is undeniable. And as for Sam, he's like this dream hybrid of cool and easygoing, yet wary when it's warranted, and outright fierce and deadly when it's necessary. And he always knows exactly when it's the right time to change those hats. And now that we've seen the first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you get a lot of that there, too. There's a side of Sam that we get to see that we really didn't know much about and never got to see, and now we're getting to see it. And I think it makes the character even richer than it already was. I really like Sam. I like that he has that air of normal person, kind of like Darcy Lewis does. You know, he does occasionally point out the fact that stuff's kind of crazy, but how easily he falls in with the superhero shtick and gets right to work is something I've always liked about him. I think part of that is probably his military background, but also nobody's going to turn down Captain America when he asks you for help. Captain America needs my help. Ain't no better reason to get back in the game. Robert Redford as Alexander Pierce. Robert Redford is not my favorite veteran actor in the MCU. That distinction goes to Michael Douglas in the Ant-Man movies, which we will get to start talking about in a couple more months. But this might be a close second. Many people have talked about how appropriate it is that the star of movies like Three Days of the Condor and All the President's Men, which were two iconic political thrillers from the 1970s, should be in what is essentially a political thriller in the MCU. He plays a very good high-ranking G-Man. He just doesn't really really well. He's got the whole espionage puppet master thing down pat, and he adds a really nuanced sort of villainy to the MCU, something that most would argue that it, it desperately needed and maybe still does. You know, it is too bad that he dies, because I would have liked to have seen more of that puppet master. I think compared to all the other puppet masters we've seen so far, you know, mostly in Tony's arc, but of course in the future there's always Thanos. His is probably the best, at least for me. He's smart, he's methodical, his plan actually, for the most part makes sense and if it weren't for that meddling steve rogers he probably would have gotten away with it <laughs> samuel l jackson as nick fury i know we got a lot of him in captain marvel but i do think that this movie is probably the best fury that we get in the mcu he's grown up since captain marvel obviously but you can see now how jaded or perhaps complicated he is now compared to what he was back then he's been through so much first dealing with tony then dealing with thor and loki and then the attack on new york and now he's just had enough i can't blame him for ghosting everybody honestly and fury was as we see in the beginning of this movie pretty cynical and jaded already so you wonder what it would take to send him over the edge and say, like, you know, F this. I suppose we found out, didn't we? Frank Grillo as Agent Brock Rumlow. I kind of really just wanted to talk about one of the few truly evil people in this movie. We talked about the sort of gray area that Steve is having to deal with now, that the bad people aren't just categorically bad and the good people aren't categorically good. Add on to the fact that it's almost impossible right now to figure out who's supposed to even be the good guys or the bad guys, but Rumlow, man, he is just bad. He does not care who he takes out. He is just on a warpath. Truly, somehow, just a purely evil dude. And what makes it even more impressive, for lack of a better word, is that he's only gonna get worse. Kobe Smulders as Agent Maria Hill. 
Maria Hill may be the only person in the MCU more loyal to Nick Fury than Natasha at this point. And while we saw a lot of that in Avengers, obviously, we mainly saw Hill serving in the capacity of Fury's first officer on board the helicarrier. In this movie, we really get a good sense of Hill being the one who will always have Fury's back in any situation. I mean, she helped him fake his own death. It's like she's this roaming proxy for him who can do pretty much anything that he can, but much more subtly, as I imagine Nick Fury draws quite a lot of attention just by being Nick Fury. And in some ways, I think that actually makes her more dangerous than him. Kobe Smulders has just gotten really good at balancing out that very business-like side of her with just a hint of humor to keep her interesting. Emily Van Camp as Agent 13 slash Sharon. Comics fans knew exactly who she was the moment she was revealed to be Agent 13, so perhaps she resonated with us a bit more for that fact alone. But honestly, she doesn't have a ton to do in this movie. But what she does do is pretty important, especially establishing herself as one of the few good apples left in S.H.I.E.L.D. when it all hits the fan. And Emily Van Camp plays the part well and does a good job teasing the audience with the prospect that she may be a player in future MCU projects. And, you know, this was before we even knew that there would be MCU TV shows. We obviously don't quite know this at this moment in time you know Captain America the Winter Soldier but it does kind of bother me a little bit that Sharon is Peggy's niece and provided as a possible future love interest for Steve even though it obviously doesn't get past the sort of schoolyard crush but outside of that I really like when we get to see her in this movie I really liked her scene in the control room with Romolo she's obviously taken on some of Peggy's characteristics and qualities and I also do like the scene in the hallway at Steve's apartment I always thought that little interaction was cute because I like that she is trying to keep her distance because this is work. But then when he goes, oh, okay, I'll keep my distance. She goes, oh, hopefully not too far. I think that was really cute to be like, she's not totally pushing him away, but she's got a job to do. I like that scene too, partly because I think it's really one of the first times we see Steve in like a normal everyday social situation post super soldier serum. It's Steve Rogers in the hallway of his apartment. And so it was kind of nice to see that very casual interaction you know he's asking her out to coffee and gets not not shot down but she politely says no and the banter about her oh yeah i just did a stint in the infectious disease ward and he's just kind of oh i'll stay away (laughs) we've gotten so used to seeing steve rogers fight aliens and hydra people and nazis and all this massive a level comic book stuff this is the first time we see him just doing something as simple as talking to his neighbor in his apartment and there's just something really refreshing about that So here's the part where Mark usually talks much more about the music because he knows more about it than me. But this is my favorite score, so I'm going to take the lead here again also. You are not only our first and foremost Buckyologist, but I think you are definitely much more of a scholar of the Henry Jackman score to this film than I am. So So there's a quote in an interview that Henry Jackman did for comicbook.com that I really like because it talks about the screaming that you can kind of hear sort of weaved in through the Winter Soldier theme. And also, I mean, use the music to break my heart more. It's fine. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong at all. There's not going to be anything left of your heart after this. So the quote from Henry Jackman says, So one of the things I ended up doing with The Winter Soldier was I spent literally 10 days just on production with vocals because I wanted to get the sensation of a human trapped inside machinery. So I did a lot of vocal recordings and then processed the living hell out of them to get these tortured, time-stretched human cries of someone who has been so processed that it's become mechanized at the same time, but you can still hear the human in there. Does the article talk about who did those vocals? No. 
No, there was a theory that it was actually Bucky's screams from when he's in the chair getting um, his memory wiped. Ooh, wow. That That's would be neat. not the case. I think even in the interview, he says that it's not Bucky's screams. It's just screams that he put together. But wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't that be even more painful if it actually were Bucky screams. Emily's heart will be <laughs> disintegrated. Also, End of the Line is one of the most hauntingly pretty piano pieces that I've ever heard in a movie. Well, will it surprise you, Emily, that while I like the score, it's not one of my favorites. Emily and I, of course, have a long-standing difference of opinion of musical styles. Admittedly, part of it is that I'm a bit more of a purist when it comes to film scores. As much as I do like electronic music, and I do think there's a place for it in film, and either a lot of electronic film scores that I think are fantastic. I'm always going to have a soft spot for the classical orchestral scores a little bit more. Again, I still like the score, but the, the scream and you know the other atonal aspects of the music, which I'm sure you love knowing what I know about your taste in music. I don't know. It just feels a little overused to me. But having said that, I understand why it's there and why Jackman thinks it's important to the score and the story. I like the music during the whole Lemurian star sequence, but after that, I find myself not really noticing the music much at all, aside from, you know, all the atonal stuff that we just talked about when Winter Soldier is on the screen. Maybe that's the whole point. I probably like his score for Civil War a little bit more because it sounds a little more traditional. If I may interject a plug here, though, ha having said all of that, I do think that Henry Jackman's scores for the Wreck-It Ralph films, which do utilize a lot of electronic instrumentation, are fantastic. And yeah, you still need to watch those movies. You are a big fan of the Wreck-It Ralph films. It's like, okay, so we need to do a surprise rom-com episode, a surprise Star Trek episode, and a surprise Wreck-It Ralph episode. <laughs> So that is our review of Captain America, the Winter Soldier. All right. Woo. We did it. That, that was a it. lot of fun. We made it. Our favorite film. Thank you, Emily, for taking point on that one. That was great. I enjoyed that very much. I am very happy to hand the keys back over to you for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that because in our next episode, ooh, child, prepare to get hooked on a feeling. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, you'll want to come and get your love by listening to our review of Guardians of the Galaxy, which we hope you'll tune in for about three weeks from now because we want you back. I can't believe I just Is did Is it that. just all going to be puns? Is that entire episode just going to be a pun joke fest? I'm going to have to make it my mission to work the title of every single song from the soundtrack into the discussion. Well, you've got so, a couple weeks to get it done. I got some time. I'll figure out a way to do it. But yes, up next, Guardians. Guardians of the Galaxy as we move forward through phase two of the MCU. We hope you all have a good few weeks. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Signing off from Studios M&E, this is Mark and Emily. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you around. See you later.